Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. And welcome back to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, the podcast that asks interesting questions that don't have any answers with your quarantine hosts, Ben Siders. That's me, and the other guy is Kirk Damon. That's Kirk, as the captain of the Enterprise. That's our second take of that intro, folks. We screwed up the first one. This is... <laughs> <laughs> Quarantine and remote recording. We are intellectual property lawyers and certified geeks practicing law in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find me, Ben, on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and you can find Kirk at KirkDMN. And you can follow this podcast on Twitter at LGGPod and find all this information on our website, LGGPodcast.com. Kirk, how you doing? Doing okay. We're back. We're back. While, <laughs> uh, yeah, we uh, we we've been having some like departmental meetings and stuff on uh, a Zoom. I think we're using, um, but uh, not everybody has warmed up to being on video while at home. Um, in fact, I'd say only about half of us have. Well, and some of us lack strong, you know, effective video webcams because we don't want to use our phones to call in on web t- and FaceTime. Some of us haven't shaved in two weeks and don't look great. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think that's normal. It's a, yeah, there's there's all the running memes I think we've all seen on social media. Of, you know, what are we going to look like when we get out of quarantine? And you have people with you know your boards here all exercising and losing weight all the time, and the other people are going, "Yeah, right. No, we're not operating the fridge." <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm definitely not exercising. I, I've tried a little bit, but uh, it has not been high on my priority list. I am, however, drinking beer. Yes, but interestingly enough, my exercise program has actually gotten back on track because of this, but it's entirely because of the fact that I don't have to get up as early because I don't have to commute. Um, yeah. That- However, however the, the drinking beer thing is also you know, definitely an issue for me. <laughs> yeah, I've got I've got a Goose Island uh, Next Coast IPA in front of me here for tonight's podcast recording. So uh, I unfortunately finished mine earlier. I had a uh, perennial coffee stout. So. Oh, nice! I actually ordered some stuff from a uh, um, uh, side project, so I've got some new beer coming this weekend. So that'll be good. Yeah, I've got some stuff from side project, and I'm hoping to uh, head down to some of the other breweries. I'm hoping to actually hit Center Ice this weekend and pick up some stuff from them. Awesome. Well, so today we're going to uh, talk about um, sort of the uh, the fallout of the quarantine. Uh, if you're listening to this later on, uh, we're recording this on the evening of April 9th. We are sort of at what I would call the the height of uh, the infections. Um, the U.S. infection rate as of now has topped out at about 32,000 new infections per day. It's not really going up. That's good. Um, <laughs> that means the, the percentage of infections as a population is, is dropping day over day. So we're trending in the right direction. But if you come back to this at some point in the future and you wonder what the heck we're talking about, uh, we, are, we are really in the thick of it right now. So hopefully we're turning the corner here. Yep. But one of, the, one of the side effects of all this is... I don't know about you, Kirk, but like my kids are doing uh, school at home and uh, they'll only get school like three days a week. But uh, we're seeing a lot of sort of chatter out there on the Internet and discussion about schools and governments and other people um, being a little more aggressive maybe than they would normally be about, shall we say, borrowing uh, <laughs> con- content that belongs to others. Yeah. For uh, for for these, you know, to, to deal with this, you know, uh, there's some software piracy going on. There's people... Um, and some of it's not all for good reasons. There's people also like trying to hack Zoom meetings and stuff into war dial into, you know, into these conferences to, you know, for, for espionage and stealing confidential information. But we're going to talk more about legitimate or what, you know, good faith uses of copyrighted and maybe even patented, ob- uh, you know, subject matter um, to deal with this, uh, this outbreak. Yeah, we're definitely doing the school at home. Uh, we found out today our kids uh, will not be going back to school this year. Uh, yep, same here. Yep, so I think you had the same thing. So that's, uh, you know, trying to you know explain that. We are, we are school three days a week would be nice. We're school five days a week. 
um, which definitely Ooh. is a, is a lot. So there was, I mean, it's not a lot of work. I mean, it's only you know probably on the order of 50, thirty minutes to an hour of you know sort of non just basic like go read something or go run around outside type you know activity. Yep. But it's it's still one of those things where it's you know just trying to get kids wit when the last thing they want to be doing is schoolwork. You know, they want to be facetiming their friends. Um, yep. you know, and running around in the yard and everything else can be definitely an issue. So it's one of those things where um, I think the, the biggest things, you know, we, we've really seen, and we've seen it definitely from our school, and I think it's most people who've had the, the school at home are also having the issue, is the fact that the, um, the what we're really seeing is that they're, they're kind of woefully unprepared um, to have enough content that they can deliver outside the classroom. You know, the teachers are very prepared for the idea of, hey, we're going to show this stuff, you know, in the classroom, we're going to talk through this here, we're going to do what we're going to do in our class. But when suddenly they're not there and it's, you know, we have to send information to the parents, it can definitely be an issue. Well, and let's think about that from a copyright perspective, you know, to the extent that the teachers at school have, you know, worksheets and textbooks and things like that, you know, the kids just have a copy, but then when they need to send something home, you know, they, they got a copy in school they can just look at, but now we have to make new copies, yeah. Uh, you know, to, to send over email or to or they or, you know, some of my kids teachers are doing um, videos where they like hold up the stuff and, and point to things. Once you do that, you've got the YouTube problem, right, where you're making new copies and then transmitting them over the Internet. And everybody who sees it is getting another copy. And, you know, strictly speaking, that's a, that's a copyright infringement unless you've got a license to do it. And I think maybe they're going to get lucky that these days a lot of that stuff is distributed with either an Express or implied license for electronic classroom use. Uh, you know, imagine we were doing this in the night, you know, in the early '90s when the internet was new and we could still kind of do this stuff. But none of these doctrines had evolved around you know, electronic transmissions yet. What a nightmare! Yeah, and that's. I think the the other thing you're really encountering right now, at least just what it is, like we're encountering a lot of them are using licensed web pages where you know, hey, if you access via the school's web page, you've got a license, you're fine, it's not a problem. Um, you know, and that's like, we've noticed it, you know, there's, you know, one of the things that one of our kids use, if you access it via their app, it, you know, won't let you in. It tells you you have to have a subscription, but if they can access it via the school's webpage, the school has a subscription, everything's fine. So I think you've got a lot of authorized use. Um, and, um, you know, that's, that's going to help in conjunction with it. But I think a lot of it also is exactly that problem. And the thing you just point out there, and I think it's a, a relevant thing to point out, the uniqueness about this is, you know, when you talk about it is it's, hey, if the kids have a worksheet and they buy a you know, textbook for each child or a workbook for each child in the school, that's all authorized. You know, that's the way they sell these workbooks. That's the way it's designed to work, stuff like that. But now they're not only having to, you know, have the kid have a workbook, but they're digitizing those workbooks. They're sending them out to people because it's the only way to get the pages out. You know, those mm-hmm. books are at school. Kids can't go get them. Um, and so, you know, I think you're, you're definitely seeing some uh, – you know, some, you know, pushing of what is technically the law of, you know, supplying, you know, the, the materials or pushing the license probably as to what it is. Now, again, I think part of it when you look at these companies looking at it, how much are they really going to care? You know, every one of these kids has a workbook. The fact that their workbook is at school and to get a digital copy of it's probably not going to bother them. Um, but it's one of those things where it's like, hey, you know, I just don't see that they're going to have an issue. But it is technically a copyright infringement or a license yeah. violation, depending on exactly what these licenses say or what the you know what's allowed underneath the the technology. We we often talk about how people misunderstand copyright as being you know if, if I'm not making any money off of it, then then it's not infringement or or it's fair use, which as we've said a million times on this podcast is not how the law it's works. At, at least that's. 
not, not how it's written, we should say, um, if, you know, for, for practical purposes, that, that does tend to be the consideration. But that's more about if someone's not profiting off of this, then what are your damages? Unless you can get statutory damages, and in the vast majority of cases you can't because you don't register the copyright in advance, then there's really no loss. And so it's not that it's not infringement. It's that there's no harm done, so there's nothing to sue over other than maybe an injunction. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I think, again, the, the reason we're talking about here in many respects is technical copyright violations. Yeah. You have to keep in mind that technical copyright violations is a huge amount of what occurs as copyright violations and a huge amount that gets litigated as copyright violations. You know, you kind of look at it and say, you know, hey, I have a copy of the song. I downloaded another digital copy. You know, arguably that's licensed, except for the fact that it's not. So it's a technical, it's a technical violation. Um, and you know, those are the kind of things where you, you bump into copyright law is not well built, you know, for the digital age. I mean, it was written for the age of the printing yep. press. It's been updated since then, but it really is not well built for the digital age. And particularly the fact that digital communication makes copies. It doesn't allow it to just sort of be transient and just sort of pass through. Yes, there are some transient copies made, but still the end, the end point and the starting point each have their own copy. It's not the same copy. Um, and I think that that's one of those things that you know, is going to be – we may very well see evolve very quickly here in copyright law in response to uh, is the fact that, hey, we've got to deal with these. And, and one of the questions, and you know, we were talking about this a little bit beforehand and before recording this, is are we going to see an evolution of exactly what is fair use? And the idea that, hey, copyright fair use is going to change in a crisis. Yeah, and I, that's one of, the things I think, one of the things I think we need to talk about with this is what, in many respects, a lot of what educational institutions use and get away with is because they fall underneath the criteria of fair use or they fall enough underneath it that nobody wants to challenge them over it. Yeah, I, I think that's a lot of it. Um, I'm pulling up 17 USC 107 right now. So what this that's the fair use section of the copyright statute. And as we said several times, although it 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 doesn't tell you what fair use is, it just tells you how to find out what fair use is, which is maddening, but that actually comes right out of the Supreme Court cases. So it, it is what it is. But it basically says that notwithstanding the terms of the Copyright Act that talk about what infringement is, um, you can make reproductions and copies and uh, for, for certain purposes, uh, uh, such as criticism, comment, news reporting, and teaching, including making multiple copies for classroom use, scholarship, or research. Not an infringement. That's what they say. Um, and they say – but that uh, – it, it suggests that, but the way it's written doesn't say that those things are always not infringement. It goes on to say, to determine whether these things are not infringement in any particular case, you consider four factors, none of which are, is there a plague? Yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing. is it's, the, the factors did not take into account the idea that you were going to take the entire country and, and the vast majority of the world effectively and say they have to stay at home and they're not going to learn in traditional education institutions that have existed the entire time the copyright statute has. Um, you know, they are based upon and the, the, the statutes are things like, is it for profit? Is it for an educational purpose? And the other thing is, is those factors are not definitive. It's a weighing test. You know, it's a balancing test where you look at it and you decide, hey, do we think this falls on one side versus the other? And again, plague is not one of them. Now, the first uh, the first factor is the purpose and character of the use. But they specifically call out, including whether such use is of a commercial nature or is for nonprofit educational purposes. Well, that clearly weighs in favor of a finding of fair use for schools. Yeah. Now, we've, we've got a lot of nonprofit, you know, there's a lot of educational purpose. And that's a lot of people would say that even the, the commercial purpose um, 
of the fair use balancing factors is probably the most important in many respects. It's definitely, I think, one of the ones that gets most used because a vast majority of times when you're talking about, you know, what is fair use, you're talking about things in an educational setting. At the same time, textbooks are a big business. Yeah. You know, and so there are limitations on what is fair use in conjunction with educational institutions and educational purpose. Um, you know, there can be licenses, there can be things underneath this and, you know, rights under fair use can be waived contractually. So it's one of those things where, you know, you look at it and say, yes, it's for educational purpose, but you really have to wonder, um, you know, is this the kind of thing they contemplated that all of a sudden, you know, educational purpose was we all need educating on everything because, you know, a huge number of people are out of work and have nothing else to do. Um, I don't think that's what was intended. No, I, I agree. Um, you know, we say it. And I, I think it kind of sets up a false dichotomy that it's either commercial or nonprofit educational. Well, nonprofit uses can be commercial and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's the thing to keep in mind is this is a waiting test. It's not something where it is like it's one side or the other. Clearly, it's which side do we think it's most yeah. on? Um, and so, you know, you can have for profit educational that can still fall on the commercial side and the, the for profit side. And again, you know, when you start talking about sort of some, you know, more modern um, essential educational institutions, particularly, you know, like, you know, college level education, which is clearly in many respects for profit. Um, you kind of look at it and say, you know, what does that mean? You know, how do these come, these places really fall underneath these statutes? And again, I think that there's been a strong weighting of the idea that when you say it's for educational purposes, we're going to give fair use a much broader play. And you, you kind of get why. It makes some sense in the idea that says, you know, hey, we don't want people coming in and saying you can't learn from something because we want you to pay for it. You know, you you kind of can see that, you know, from a policy point of view, that makes some sense. But again, what we really need to be looking at is it's, it's not whether or not it makes sense, but what does the statute say and what are the courts said? And again, it doesn't say in there that the purpose and the nature of the use is because it's from use in, yeah. in a plague. You know, <laughs> that's not one of the factors that's gone in. Now, it could be added. This is a judicially created doctrine in many respects. So, you know, they can look at it and say, no, the purpose and the nature of the use having to deal with quarantine, you know, having to deal with, you know, education and isolation weighs much more heavily on that yeah. direction. But, you know, we don't supply yet. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting. I, I think one of the reasons why this first uh, factor is emphasized so much is because, and we'll get into this when we go through all of them, of the four, it's, it's often the easiest to understand and to explain. Because I, I, I find applying the other three to be very difficult. And someday we're going to get to talk about the Google v. Oracle case, and we'll go into why it's so hard to apply. But th this, this one's, I mean, despite the false dichotomy, still relatively easy, especially in this case, right? It's, it's an educational purpose, for the most part, nonprofit. Query whether, you know, the University of Phoenixes of the world have a, have a problem here. Uh, but, you know, we'll, we'll see how that plays out. Yeah, and definitely, and I think, I think you're also seeing with it, quite frankly, is it's a lot of people that are involved in the education are purposefully licensing, mm -hmm. you know, for this. We have seen a number of even for-profit universities that are suddenly making, you know, classes and lectures which are being put online for their students more broadly available, um, if nothing else, to educate the public. I mean, many of the stuff, is, it's, it's amazing the kind of things that are popping up right now that are being made available. You know, it's one of those where, you know, I... You know, as somebody who, you know, is working, you know, full time while also trying to educate children, <laughs> as many of us are, um, you kind of look at the people who are not in that scenario and say, you know, the, the educational opportunity right now is amazing. If you wanted to go out, you know, and watch lectures and stuff like that, you know, if you were a, a college student right now, you know, yes, it's it's 
kind of horrifying about the way you're having to experience college, you know, compared to what I think college has traditionally been. At the same time, the opportunity there is, is immense and different. Uh, and, you know, the things that are available are incredible. And, you know, there's no real question in a lot of those because those are things that are being made, you know, purposely not for profit, even more so where they're basically saying, no, it is fair use. You know, we're, we're the content creator and we're going to say it is fair use to use this French kid. Let's look at the second one. Uh, the nature of the copyrighted work. I've always found this one tricky to apply because I, I think the intention here is to say we have to keep in mind what kind of work it is. And some things copyrights apply to more broadly than others. I would say that literary works probably receive the broadest copyright protection. You can write a book that's almost completely you know, or, original as far as not you know, cutting and pasting content, yet it can still infringe. And the same with uh, you know visual works, artistic works. But then when you get to things like software, uh, dance choreography, uh, things where uh, the, the scope of what you can get protection on is a bit narrower, uh, that's where this comes into play. Yeah, I think it comes into play a lot of times where you sort of get into the interactive copyrights, things like music, where you know, you've got, hey, there's recorded music, there's rights in the cheap music, you know, there's rights in the specific mechanical recording, there's rights in the ability to perform, stuff like that. I think that's a lot of you know, where they're coming at with that, where they look at it and say, hey, you know, if one of these rights is implicated and the others aren't, um, under fair use. So again, if, you know, I, it's, you know, I'm, I want to use sheet music for a school orchestra is somewhat different than, you know, playing the, the symphony, you yeah. know, that recorded that same song, uh, in conjunction with a school, you know, event. And so I think that's a little bit of what they're, they're getting at there. I have to agree with you though. It's one of those where you kind of look at it and go, what do you mean by the nature of the copyrighted work? I think a lot of it also though, is certain things just simply have a, a sort of more useful educational purpose. Um, I think it's kind of what they're looking at. So, you know, if, hey, if this is a cartography class, we have to kind of look and say, you know, well, you kind of need maps. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, it's hard to say that, the, that, you know, we should grant the maps a broader copyright in a cartography class. We should probably grant them a lesser right because of what the nature of the educational thing is. Uh, and also, I think, because it isn't just education, and, and you know, we, we talk about it as the educational concept, but fair use applies to everything. You can also bump into that question of saying, you know, hey, is this something which should be entitled broad or narrow or protection? And it's something where if you if you narrowly infringe something where again there may be interactive rights you know between multiple different rights holders um how much do we really want to say that's copyright infringement or one of the priorities benefits but the others don't when we kind of look at the idea that maybe there's a, a joint infringement but, but you, music presents an interesting um uh point of differentiation there because for, for like a sound recording of a song, it is not copyright infringement to re-record a song and try to make a new recording that sounds exactly like a prior recording. Like if I want to be an Elvis impersonator and try and sound exactly like Elvis, it is not copying because I don't violate the originality requirement. I still originated my recording and did not copy the prior recording in terms of taking the sound and just dumping it in like a sample. But for lit for literary works, that would wouldn't, that wouldn't be the case. If I tried to make a a, uh, a, a you know a lookalike or a copycat of Harry Potter that copied the plot points beat for beat and just changed some character names here or there, that could still be found to be an infringement, whereas music would not. 
Yeah. And I think that is, again, I think that's the idea that interacting rights and some of that is that's where it comes into the nature of the copyrighted work. You know, we're talking about something where it's, you know, it's granted very narrow rights because it is a sound recording versus something that's granted broader rights because it's a literary work, um, you know, or a, a audiovisual work, stuff like that. Um, I think those are the kind of things that they're getting at with that. Again, I think it's one of these that it is a hard to interpret yeah. piece, but I also think it's one of the doesn't get used that much. I don't think people really look at it and say, oh, that's a deciding factor is the fact that this is a, mu a literary work versus a musical work. I just don't think they ever really find this as being a deciding factor. It's something that potentially goes into some decisions, but I just don't see it. Yeah, I, I can't think of a single relevant fair use case where it really boiled down to factor two. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, can, I can't think of many that even address you, quite frankly, other than to just say it's, you know, it's a work for profit or something like that. Uh, again, I think that's, that's you know, the one place you potentially do see it is, you know, hey, is, is this a work that you're saying is technical copyright infringement, but you otherwise give away for free versus something which, no, this is really being sold. That's the nature of I, the work. I think, um, so, again, I think they can address it, but it doesn't necessarily. I think it's going to come up. It, it might get additional emphasis we haven't seen before in the Google v. Oracle case, which is about not just software, but one narrow subset of software, API, uh, you know, header files, basically definitions. Um, this that's a case where the nature of the copyrighted work might actually be very important because Google basically loses on every other factor if you look at if you look at them. So, but but that's the one, yeah, that's that's the one factor that I think arguably weighs in Google's favor is to say, well, look, it's a, it's an API, and what they're really going after, what Google's arguing there is is the functional nature of it. I, I disagree with that point, but I think they do have a good point that the nature of it as an API, the scope of what copyright um, you know Oracle would have in that is is thin. I think I think Oracle maybe even conceded that point, maybe not, but I, I think that just kind of makes intuitive sense. And if you look at the at that case, it's not even about the names of the functions; it's about the sequence structure organization and and the vast majority of people who have very strong opinions about that case don't seem to, to get their arms around that point um so it's kind know, of hyper technical legal point it, it is but that's what the entire case is about so if you don't get the hyper technical legal point you have very passionate opinion about something you don't understand <laughs> yeah and it's i think it's worth noting that and just you know it's one of those things you bump into a lot in copyright is a lot of copyright is very specific legal arguments and a lot of copyright in the press unfortunately is general concepts uh, yeah, but by necessity, you know, the, the, your your average you know tech journalist doesn't know all this stuff, has no reason to understand all this stuff, and is wasting their time if they're trying to learn all this. They're journalists, not lawyers. Exactly. So, all right. So, factor three: amount and substantiality of the portion used in relation to the copyrighted work as a whole. Th this one often comes up, but I think also is usually not decisive because there's two ways you copy something: either you take the whole thing or you take a relatively small piece, and there's not a lot in between. Yeah. I think the place this really comes into play is, and it kind of plays off the idea of the nature of the copyrighted work and the nature of the infringement and, and the, what it's used for. This is really, I think, the thing that holds true when you say, I'm doing a review of something. You know, so I'm going to do a movie review and I take one frame, you know, from a, a, a motion picture because I want yes. a photo to go with my newspaper review. That's where you look at it and say, hey, one frame doesn't tell you anything really about the movie. You know, even if it's a pivotal frame, it doesn't really tell you. I mean, you know, there's more frames in a preview than there are in a, in a review. Um, oh, Kirk, how, how many Star Wars trailers have we been completely bamboozled on because of, of the scenes they choose, they choose to show us? <laughs> We're going to show you the flashback scene in the trailer. <laughs> but yeah, I think we fall for it every time. <laughs> it's because people make good trailers. 
<laughs> I enjoy trailers. I actually, I have to admit, that I enjoy watching trailers. I like trailers. I think they're a lot of fun, uh, and it's, I enjoy well-designed ones. I enjoy ones that do kind of throw me. Um, but it's one of those things where the yeah, I think that that's a lot of where that's coming from is saying, hey, there's a recognition to do certain forms of things that are fair use, reviews in particular, critiques in particular, you know, analysis, these kind of things that are done in conjunction with it. You have to take small portions of it because otherwise it just doesn't make any sense. You know, you need still images. You need to make citations to, um, you know, particular pages or passages, um, you know, from a literary work. So it's one of those things where I think that that's really where this comes into. Again, I think it's decisive because I think we kind of look at it and say, well, but the other ones are almost stand alone because if you have this scenario, well, it, it looks a whole lot more like it's a critique under factor one if you take very little, you know, versus if you take a lot. Yeah. Um, and so I think there's a lot to be said for it kind of ties together, but it, I think that's where it really comes from. Yeah. So your typical infringer is either sealing the entire thing and then reselling it somehow or doing something with it or, or taking a tiny piece and then using it for criticism or they're sampling some music. And so this, this tends to fall on one of two ends of that spectrum. And yeah, you know, like, like we said with, as with factor two generally is not decisive. The first factor and then the fourth factor, which we'll get to in a second, generally wind up carrying the day. On that note, let's talk about the fourth factor, the effect of the use upon the potential market for or value of the original copyrighted work. This is where the economic argument comes in that, oh, I'm not making any money off of it, therefore it's not, it's not, uh, therefore it's fair use. But that's not the question. The question isn't whether you're making any money, it's are you costing somebody else money? Yep. And that's a really key point is it's, and this is kind of one of those sort of legal things that I think you get a lot of arguments with. We're almost arguing a double negative. Again, the argument is not, did you make anything from it? It's, did you cost the other side anything that they didn't make from it because of the fact that you gave it away for free? Um, and it makes sense, again, as to what it is. If you look at it and say, if the defense was, I made no money, you could just freely you know, steal other people's work and give it away for free and have an, an obvious defense. Um, and that's not what they intended. They intended to say, are you damaging their market to have this? Again, this is one of those factors that I think is much more important. Um, and I think that really ties in as well to, to factor three with the idea that, hey, if you if I just take one frame, are people going to go steal your movie? You know, not not watch your movie because they can look at one frame yeah. of it for free. No, Obviously of course not. not. Yeah. You know, they're going to go watch the movie regardless. They they haven't damaged your market for it. Now, their critique may have damaged your market for it, depending on the review of the movie. The game. Yeah, I'd say in that case, though, you deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> and let's face it, really bad reviewed movies sometimes do very well commercially precisely because they're so poorly reviewed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I think it, it's those kind of things. And that's when you look at fair use, and a lot of times I think, you know, when people look at the four factors, and I've, I've said this before when you do it, you almost can't look at the four factors as four separate factors. You almost look at them and say, you look at these four things, and then you weigh it all. And really, it's it's a one-factor test. It's just you look at these four things in the course of determining the one. And then there's the there's the there's the phantom fifth factor, which we call transformative fair use. And that is the degree to which <laughs> basically the more that the use you're making of the original transforms it or uses it for a different purpose, which is really kind of like factor one, the more likely you are to, to get away with it, basically. Uh, and then there's, of course, we should also mention there's always the Andy Warhol rule. If Andy Warhol did it, it's fair use. <laughs> It's, it's, that's a running joke, I mean, in conjunction with attorneys, that, you know, if you look in many respects at what Andy Warhol did, it, it's flatly copyright infringements. But it, that's where almost where transformative fair use came from. I mean, I don't think it actually came specifically from him, but definitely it's one of those things that regularly gets used is the idea is that this is art of a wholly different level. 
Um, and I, I happened to see the Andy Warhol exhibit when we were at the Museum of Modern Art in Chicago um, a few months ago. And, you know, it was it's one of those things I don't particularly care for modern art, but I really wanted to see the Andy Warhol exhibit because I knew how influential he was and how sort of a major figure he was. And because of encountering the copyright and seeing his work in person is an entirely different experience than just like looking at it in textbooks and stuff like that and really seeing what he did um, with it. And it was one of those things like looking at it, I'm like, I can understand why they'd say this isn't copyright infringement because there's no other way to make this, but it's not copying it. You know, yes, it is, but it's yeah. not. It's making this entirely unique artwork out of it. Um, and so, yeah, that's where a lot of, I think, the transformative fair use comes into. One thing I think is interesting to keep in mind, though, is it's as much as we talk about the sort of fair use factors, music kind of goes the wrong way. Like, you look at what they found for, you know, music infringement. You say, hey, you know, small samples, you know, two and three note selections of songs you know, which, you know, are sampled in other, you know, other styles of music where the markets don't overlap have been found infringements and not fair use. Um, and so it is one of those kind of things where it's, you know, as we say, it's, it's a waiting test. You've got to realize that a court can come down on either side of this in any given fact scenario, because they're going to look at it. And they're going to say, what do we think is most important and where do we think it is? And in those, a lot of times you can look at it and say, hey, they're transformative. You know, they transformed the music into something entirely different. They used a very small portion. It basically didn't affect the market at all, but it's a clearly commercial use and the song was highly successful. And so suddenly, you know, factor one seems to be the only factor that matters. You know, the rest all go the other direction, but factor one still goes the direction of saying no. It's I, th I think music, the more I think about music as a, as a form of, of copyright protection, and we should differentiate, music is different from a sound recording. The, and and this, this is important because music, as in terms of like a composition, is I think unique among our IP categories in that it, it doesn't really exist, right? Like the, the book is written down somewhere. You can go find the, the words for it, right? And, and, and it's expressed there. Even a screenplay like a movie, the script is somewhere. But with music, the sheet music is a... I have a number yeah, of them. Yeah, the, the sheet music is is a literary work. That is not the music copyright. The music copyright is to the music in the abstract, the sequence of tones and pauses that make up a melody or tune. It's it's to that in the abstract, and we have nothing else that we protect that way that 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 exists that way. And the only way to get a copyright to music is to either record yourself playing the song. Uh, which gives you two copyrights, one in the composition and one in the recording of you playing the composition, or to write the sheet music, which just gives you one copyright, well, two, I guess, one to the literary work of the sheet music and then one to the song itself. So the idea of a song, we always, I always think of it as recordings, but in the law, the song is not the recording. It is the quote-unquote composition, which doesn't have to ever be written down. As long as you record it, you own the composition to that extent. So it's, it's a really weird area, and I think because of that, cases about music copyright, not sound recording infringement, but music copyright, are kind of in a category on their own, even where fair use is concerned. And I think you have to be really careful about extrapolating those decisions to other forms of, of uh, copyrighted IP. I think the one thing that's really interesting in conjunction with, and I, I do think music is unique in conjunction with it, but I think part of it also, when you talk about the idea, you know, what is the composition, what is it? So much of music sort of doesn't exist in, in written forms. You ever go to, you know, museums for famous, you know, musicians, stuff like that. You know, one of the things that always amazes me about musicians, and, you know, I've seen it from musicians performing live, uh, particularly when they're performing new music that they've just written, stuff like that. You know, they don't have mu sheet music they're, they're working off of. They may have a lyric sheet, 
you know, that's giving them, hey, here's the lyrics as to what it is, here's the wording, which they may not even follow. You know, there's plenty of stories of, you know, hey, they went in and recorded it, messed up a word, yeah. and decided yeah, to make it better. John Lennon you know? famously could never remember um, the lyrics to any of the Beatles songs when they were playing. Yeah. And so, you know, it's one of those things where you really kind of bump into this, that music as a copyrighted work is very different because we talk about it needing to be fixed in form, but a lot of music never really is fixed in form. Um, and I think it's something that, that, that the law has struggled with. We've talked about jazz before, like improvisational styles. You can, I mean, I've got, I've got album recordings of, if, if you've ever seen jazz sheet music, there'll be, you know, the, the introduction and then, you know, some, some melody. And then there'll be just a, an infinitely repeating set of 8 to 32 measures uh, where you have the rest of the band plays a backing beat and then each person steps up and improv something and nothing that you're supposed to play is written down. So although you can record that, use just one recording of one version of the improvisation. The next time the band plays it, it could be completely different. If you've ever been to like a, like a rock concert or a heavy metal concert, that's one of the things you go for. I've seen Metallica several times. Uh, I don't even know if Kirk, Kirk Hammett's still in Metallica, but back when he was, he would always play some awesome solo that went on for three or four minutes that you never heard before because he improvs the entire thing. It's different in every concert. So I guess if you record that, then you have a copyright to that musical composition because it's been recorded. But the next one might not be yeah, and it is. It's you know the the concept of sort of those immediate varieties, and uh, there's a lot of artists that are very popular for doing exactly that. You know, for modifying their own music, changing it. There's a lot of artists that you know make a point of the fact that their the music in their concerts is not performed the same way they record it, precisely so that people want to see it live and they see a different experience. I mean, Garth Brooks is notorious for that. My understanding is Lady Gaga is notorious for doing that. I mean, she definitely did it in the uh, the concert I saw. You know, ever. Um, Brooks and Dunn, yeah. another country artist, were definitely known for the idea that they they would they would change lyrics in their songs. They would modify the way they were played when they played them live, and yeah. they did it on purpose because they were like, "Hey, you know, people want to see something different. You didn't come here to you, you want to hear the album, go home and listen to it. You came here to hear music, and us playing live music is going to be a different experience than it is to stay at home and listen to the album. You know, yeah, we're not going to change it to the point you don't recognize it. But they, they do fun it. covers uh, too. If you ever yeah, go see yeah. like a, a live performance, they'll, they'll often cover songs. That you've never heard yeah. them play before. Yeah, it's it, you definitely see it. One of the ones I got to see, which I went sort of going to see a concert specifically to see the guitar solos. Um, I went to go see the the first revival of Guns N' Roses, specifically because yes. I wanted to see Slash play a guitar solo. <laughs> Um, you know, and it was amazing. I mean, you know, it's that kind of thing. And it is, it's, you know, it's really interesting to see that. My my daughter's currently learning guitar. And actually one of the big jokes I had is I we put on a couple of times on YouTube of people who've recorded, um, you know, various of the solos. Um, it's a running joke between her and her guitar teacher that every time her guitar teacher says, you know, what is the next thing you want to learn how to play? She always responds <laughs> that she wants to learn Freebird, <laughs> which is something I put her up to. <laughs> But, uh, you know, so she finally had to, to listen to a recording of Freebird. Oh God, it's like a 12 minute idea song. What I was talking about. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, you know, I had that kind of, which is also one of those things I think is interesting. And I don't know if you've ever done it, but I, I happened to have noticed it at the time. And I didn't know if it was on purpose. It was just because of the way it was. If you play Guitar Hero, uh, the original Guitar Hero, the, the championship final is song really? is Freebird. Yeah. So the very last song you play is Freebird. And when it hits the guitar solo section, I noticed it doesn't seem to stop you playing for missing notes. So while it's giving you a, a, the guitar solo on the screen, 
I think it's treating it as it's a guitar solo. They don't care what it is. So you just have to keep playing the guitar. It doesn't matter if you actually hit the notes or not um, in order to keep going. Now, part of it's probably because it's such a long song. Oh, you would yeah. go completely bonkers trying to actually get the notes right. But especially since you, you can't practice it because you only get it at the, at the very end. But it's one of those where I always wondered if they did that on purpose with the idea of it's, it's a guitar solo. So, play anything uh, you like. so random aside, uh, I, I am, I've re- reacquainting myself with my guitar skills. I played a lot in high school, a little bit in college, and then basically not at all for the last ugh, 20 years. Um, so I got a new one for Christmas and I've been, I've been kind of learning to play again. And I set up a little anonymous YouTube channel where I put a couple of, you know, one or two minute videos of me practicing various songs. Uh, someone I know suggested, you know, record yourself playing. It will improve your play a lot. And, and it has. I don't sound nearly as good when I, re- when I read the record or watch the recordings <laughs> as it sounds when I'm playing it live. But what's interesting is um, YouTube's uh, algorithm will go through and tag those songs. Uh, and then if anybody watches it, then there's a, a commission paid to the artist. Uh, so I can tell how good my, my, my performance is by whether YouTube can recognize the song or not. If, it's, if nobody claims it, then it's so terrible and so far off that the algorithm couldn't even tell what it was. Now that's, that's amusing, the idea of using a digital algorithm to determine how good you are. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> looking at my, my, my page now uh, to see which ones. Yeah, my, my Blackbird got claimed. Hotel California got claimed. Ooh, Norwegian Wood got claimed. I'm terrible at that one. So, so yeah, I'm, 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 I'm getting either I'm getting better or the algorithm is. <laughs> yeah, I have more confidence in YouTube's programmers than my guitar skills. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, but I think it's, it, it is sort of, you know, taking this aside from music, you know, music has a lot of sort of unique things. And it is, it's difficult to use music to extrapolate fair use. But the thing you really bump into is, unfortunately, a lot of fair use cases are music because that's where the, the, the things really come into play. And again, part of it's because these are not, you know, in education, in fact, literature, a lot of it's educational use and sort of falls clear on that side. When you talk music, it's almost entirely commercial. Um, and so you really get much more into the, you know, hey, there's some real issues here. And the commercial is oftentimes very, very large. So there is reasons to basically challenge these. So while we look at it and say music is unique from a fairy's point of view, we also realize a lot of fairies. We should also mention, I, I, I think, I'm going off memory here. We didn't prepare for this episode at all, by the way, folks. Kirk and I just sat down and said, let's record something. So we're wondering. <laughs> I usually at least make an outline. I didn't do that today. Uh, but but I, it wasn't the last Supreme Court fair use case, the two live crew case. I think it was. Um, well, I mean, we've had we've had fair use stuff more recently in conjunction with the um, is the Taylor is a Taylor Swift song having to, the to do with it. Court? I thought those were just federal. Uh, no, I didn't go to the Supreme Court. Yeah, I'm trying to think. This, the two life crew case may be the last Supreme Court case. I'm trying to think. Well, I thought there was the one more. The reason I want to mention it is because, it is and right this now. is going to happen with Google v. Oracle also, I suspect, is people often misunderstand what these holdings are. And in, in the two life crew case, in the lower circuit, they had held that what two life crew had done was, as a matter of law, not a fair use. And the Supreme Court said, that's not true. It's possible that it could have been. Uh, go, go back and retry the case, and then it's settled. So that case is commonly cited for the idea that because what two live crew did was parody, parody is always fair use. But that is not quite what happened. They just said parody can be fair use, and nobody wanted to find out whether it was or not in that case. So I, you know, Google me or Google v. Oracle may be the same thing where the Federal Circuit held that the facts, uh, you know, adduced in evidence in that case as a matter of law were not fair use. I would not be surprised if what happens is the Supreme Court reverses and says no. Those, you know, those facts could be fair use. Go do it again. 
and then it settles. And then we'll, and then what's going to happen is IT people are all going to say, ah, the Supreme Court said APIs are not copyrighted. No, that's not what that would mean. But we'll talk about that if we get there. Yeah, I think the exact thing, and I think it's just one of those things to point out. We do it. We say that phrase as a matter of law. Um, which is one of those things you definitely sort of learn in conjunction with law school. And basically what it means is that regardless of what the underlying facts are, given the specific, you know, thing that you told us, there's no possible way that it, it is, it is fair use. That's basically what the federal circuit found. There's no possible way it is fair use. Um, and a, again, this is kind of one of those legal double negatives. You know, the Supreme court comes in and says, no, it's possible. It is. Since it's possible it is, you can't have found yes. that it definitively isn't. So therefore, we send it back to say, is it or isn't it? Um, and that's the it, it's a it's a weird thing, and it, it's one of those things you bump into just a lot in law. Uh, that and and I tell people as they say, as I said, in, in law, a double negative and an affirmative are yep. not the same thing. They are completely different things, and that's kind of an example of it where you see this, where it's the what they found is a double negative. And the, um, the the Supreme Court comes back and says, yes, but it could be affirmative. So circling back to coronavirus, I mean, we just went through all these factors and then, as, as we like to do, went down a rabbit hole <laughs> into music for a while. Um, yeah, well, us? No. Um, but uh, circling back to coronavirus, you know, none of these, I guess the first one kind of is about the fact that it's an educational use, but that's not specific to the coronavirus itself. Do, do you think we would see courts make additional allowances for um, good faith uh, uses of copyrighted material? I mean, setting aside school stuff, just people trying to get by and do their jobs and, and, and not have to lay people off and, and just keep the world turning. Do, do, do you think the courts will be inclined to be more generous in how they apply Section 107 uh, in coronavirus cases? I think what you're going to see, quite frankly, and it's, I think the courts do it a lot. The courts are influenced by policy. They're influenced by outside factors outside of the law. There's no question about that. Um, we can do a large discussion about why, you know, the Alice in patent law was probably inappropriately influenced by outside policy. Um, we can do four or five episodes on that. But the, the, I think what you're going to see with it is because fair use is a balancing test. I think you're going to see courts really look at that balancing. And this is just one more factor that gets thrown in and they're not going to throw it in and say, oh, you know, because coronavirus, you know, to, to use sort of the Internet speak of it. What they're going to say is they're going to say, oh, we find that, you know, factor one is more important yeah. in this case because of coronavirus, but that's written between the lines. Um, you know, so I, I do think you're going to see some leniency from courts, but I also think it's one of those things that you definitely would not want to rely upon the idea that courts are going to give leniency because it's one of these things where it's going to be an unwritten read between the lines. We found this because, you know, type of things. It's it's going to be something where, you know, we you know everybody looking at it knows that's the reason why. But the court is not going to tell you. I think the reason they're not going to tell you it's the reason why is because they don't want people saying that's the reason that I can do it because that's the reason they, they, they basically want to say, you know, Hey, if you did it because you thought you could simply because of the fact that coronavirus existed, no, you can't. And we're going to smack you. for yeah, that. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, I think genuine good faith uses are going to be given a bit more leeway. They're not going to hold, Oh yeah, coronavirus, it's all good, but uh, it, it's going to come up in the course of analyzing these factors and they're going to be less inclined to punish people. But I think those, those cases are also going to have vanishingly small precedential value in future cases because I just, you know, this is such a unique fact pattern. <laughs> you know, well, when's the last time this happened, right? 
right? It, I mean, it's been it's well, been a century. It's been like four pandemics in the last twenty not, years. Not, not like, like this, right? We're like, I mean, I've never been quarantined. Have you? No, <laughs> no, I've never. Been <laughs> That's what I remember. So you know, I, this is such a unique situation. Hopefully, it's unique. I hope we don't have this become a recurring part of everyday lives. But um, I, I think the courts are going to to expand on 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 be more generous in how they apply this law without saying so just the way you said, but then those cases are not going to have, you know, going forward. I mean, put your, put your litigator hat on. You're, you're in 2025 arguing a case and you find something that's awesome and you go, oh crap, it was a coronavirus case. You're going to be real hesitant about leaning too hard on that authority because you know your opponent's going to say, judge, come on, that was the coronavirus thing. All, all bets were off. Yeah, I mean, you, you definitely kind of have a little bit of that, you know, where is it? And, and the uniqueness of it is when we say, you know, yeah, nothing like this is how we haven't had a you know pandemic in 100 years. Um, but I think one of the things we also look at it is it's we have had, you know, unique circumstances arise. You know, you can look back and it's I'm constantly comparing it. I'll, people know what I talk to. I'm constantly comparing your current situation to the start of World War Two uh, and the idea that it's it's an it's an era of history of that much significance. You know, what has changed right now, what we are seeing happen right now. And, you know, there's changes that are made for around there. As you see things that you see uniquely, um, you know, wars lead to differences. You know, things come into, you know, unique effects. I mean, one of the ones I always remember, and I joked about it, I actually worked years ago on a patent um, involving uh, fire, you know, black powder firearms. And one of the patents that was cited against us, the start of the abstract began with, in the war between the states. Mm-hmm. You know, it, you get the thing. This was written, you know, and the whole design of this particular thing had to do with injury from from bullet wounds in in the Civil War. Um, you know, you see that kind of stuff, and you know, now you look back at it and you're like, hey, that's kind of amazing to see. But we're going to see that kind of stuff going on now in our lifetimes. You know, all of a sudden, it's you know, the war between the states is something that that is is not ancient history anymore you know this is not ancient history this is something we're living through and again five years from now when we're you know analyzing what we're doing of course with it it's still gonna be there in the same way that you know people were influenced by what happened in world war ii people were influenced by what happened in world war one people were influenced by the great depression people have been influenced by sort of major historical events throughout history um throughout their lifetimes throughout their children's lifetimes um in ways that we're not used to because we haven't had an event of this import in our lifetimes yet you know i mean a few people have you know my my mother survived world war ii um and so you know there's definitely people who are alive that are in that situation but the vast majority of us are yeah i think that's right there's gonna be a lot of interesting fallout from this from just from an academic and legal perspective this this i've told my kids several times pay attention to what's going on right now remember this time in your life because this is something that that you know hopefully fingers crossed never happens again to this extent uh and and you're always going to remember like the the it's like the challenger shuttle or when kennedy was shot right like you will remember the year that you were quarantined for two months and school was just canceled. Yeah, right. Potentially for more than two months. But yeah, it's, it is one of those. And again, I sort of look at it as, it's, you know, this sort of, you know, great import as to what it is. And one of the real things I think is very interesting about it is we don't know what effect it's going to have. You know, I think there's been a lot of reanalysis of history recently, of people going back and sort of looking through history with modern lens and saying, hey, this decision was a bad decision because, you know, it could have been done this way. We could have, you know, we could have resolved World War II with less death. You know, people doing a lot of that in analytical history. We can't do that right now. And we have to recognize that, you know, 10 years from now, people are going to be going back and looking yeah. at the decisions we make today. That type of, you know, history. But we're making those having no idea 
where the yeah, end of this is. I think, it's, I think is. it's too easy and maybe a little lazy. Uh, maybe that's too harsh of a term, but too, too easy to go back to history, knowing the outcome of the decisions that were made, and then say, here's what would have happened if we'd done something different. Well, yeah, once you know how one path resolves, it's easier to predict the other two or at least make it look convincing. Uh, but I don't think those choices are, are at all obvious at the outset of, of stuff like this. Yeah, the way I put it, I, I told people in conjunction with it, and I think it's very true, is it's the, the hard part we have looking at this right now is you know we're 10 pages into the novel that hasn't mm-hmm. been written and the idea of you're looking at it and saying this character is doing something that's a bad idea or a good idea is ludicrous you know you, you can't be looking at it and saying you know we have any idea what it is because we don't know what the end is and it, as again as i'm always sort of telling people about it when this is all over and we're looking back in 2025 or 2030 at this there will be decisions we will look back and we will say, geez, yep. those were boneheaded. And we'll look at women and say, geez, those were brilliant. And the answer to it is, is we don't know which, which yeah. are which right now. We really don't. We may look at it right now and say, this is the most brilliant decision there is. And it turns out to be the most boneheaded decision that was made. I mean, you know, we've, we've talked about it, you know, previously in conjunction with it, you know, should the British have sunk the Bismarck? Probably. <laughs> you know, he's, he's, you know, he's, he's you know probably. Um, but at the time, it, <laughs> at the time, you know, it, it yeah. They didn't. And there's reasons why they didn't. And so, you know, it's it's those types of things that I think is very, very interesting. And from me as a lawyer, and I think you're sort of in this, we're looking at it as from a legal point of view, this is going to impact laws. This is going to impact the way laws are written. This is going to impact the way laws are you know, enforced. It's also going to impact, particularly for us being involved in technology, the way people look at technology, the priorities we place on technology, um, things like that. And it's a whole new world. And to me, it's, it's fascinating to be looking at it and saying, I don't know what it feels like. I actually commented about it. And, and again, I said, th- there's all those comments where if you had a time machine, what would you do? And it, one of the ones I always said, as I said, I would actually go back I, I, to be in London at the invasion of Poland at the start of World War II. You know, London, because it's, it's closer, just to be there and interact with the people, with me knowing the end, knowing how this, this is going to play out, how it's going to end, what's coming, you know, the, the negative things that are coming, these very bad, these very decisive things, and just be able to see people react to it without their knowledge, but me having the knowledge is what it is. Uh, unfortunately, I've kind of gotten that wish. Um, I'm now getting to see events unfold without people knowing the end. Instead of me knowing the end, getting to see it unfold around me, I'm part of it. Um, again, which is not quite exactly the way I would have planned it. But the, uh, uh, but it's it's a very fascinating thing. It's a very interesting thing. And I think it's a, it's a worthwhile thing. And I'm hoping people out there, quite frankly, are looking at it. The other thing with it is, and it's just I want to end on sort of one of those notes of positivity. Um, if you haven't, go and look at some of the positive things that are coming out of this. There's some utterly fascinating um, statistics, some utterly fascinating science, things that are coming out that are very positive. Um, you know, the ones that I've been focusing on just recently that I think are great. Um, the world is a whole lot less noisy right now, uh, which means that we're actually able yeah. to better detect earthquakes, which I think is sort of fascinating. Um, they are doing science right now. They have been unable to do 
because the fact that the world is too noisy. Um, so it's one of those things that's like, you know, kind of fascinating as to what it is. You know, pollution levels in certain areas are going down. Uh, my personal favorite one is the fact I that the pretend is at the Hong Kong Zoo apparently <laughs> just needed privacy <laughs> um, and have actually made it after nine years. I we, just we, love we are that going one. to learn a lot of things <laughs> you know, that they didn't, like, they didn't know. And then there's a lot of just more individually personal ones. Uh, again, you know, things that I think are sort of, you know, fun that's out there. Again, if you want a happy story, the number of dogs that are currently in animal shelters is the lowest it's been in years um, because people are adopting them because they want pets because they're stuck in their houses and want companions. Um, and so it's one of those things where like you look at it and you say, you know, there's just this sort of some of these very positive stories, very interesting stuff coming out, which is overshadowed by the scary stuff. And, and, and I think, you know, there's good reason for that. And there's, you know, um, a lot of just, you know, general psychology behind that. But it's one of those things where it's going out and looking at some of those. There, there are a lot of silver linings. Like I was, I was just looking over like, like basic finance stuff. And I'm like, I'm thinking we're, we're you know, we're trying to, to, to order from local restaurants and things like that to try and help support these businesses. And I'm thinking, God, how long can we continue to eat out? Like, like three nights a week. Then I realized I'm not going through a tank of gas every four days, driving back downtown and back every day. So I'm, I, I got into my car the other day to go pick something up and I kind of looked at it and I'm like, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you the last time I drove anywhere because I, I was also in Mexico the week before this all happened. So I had a week off there and then we've been in quarantine for two weeks. I've hardly driven anywhere. Yeah, there's, there's some fun stuff. It's interesting when you talk about that because we've actually gone the other way. We used to eat out three to four nights a week. Uh, and we are currently in the process of just utterly <laughs> demolishing the pantry um, is good because we, we got to see it. We got a CSA box for years um, we loved it, but it always came with a lot of meats and we didn't eat them all. We, we ate all the vegetables, but we didn't always eat all the meats. And so our freezer has had all these weird meats in it. Well, suddenly now I can pull something out and go, oh, this is going to take me four hours yeah. to roast. Well, who cares? I'm home, you know. I hadn't been able to make it. I hadn't been able to make some of these dishes just because they required me to be able to, you know, be near an oven. Whereas now, you know, yeah, I can pull a laptop up on the kitchen table, you know, sit up here and, and watch the stove every half hour, you know, that's fine. And, and so it's all of a sudden like, you know, we're, we're using these, these things that we acquired, you know, many of which is extremely high quality meat and things like that, that we just never had a chance to use. And we've actually reached the point where wow. we're now out of chicken. We have run out of all the, you know, like fancy free range chicken we got. Well, one thing that's, that's, interesting uh for, for me at least dealing with all this i've got a home office which is kind of nice but like my my guitars and stuff are in my office so when i'm sitting here working on something and i'm just kind of staring and, and can't figure out what i need to do i need to take a break you know at, at work i get up and walk down to your office or, or walk you know up to 24 and get uh, get something from the vending machine i don't do that uh, i don't i don't get up and go get a snack or go get more coffee i just sit in my office and usually grab one of my guitars and and start strumming or playing just to kind of take my mind off of things and, and get refocused focused. So that's had two effects. One, I'm, I'm effectively practicing guitar for like a collective hour a day, whereas before I might have practiced for an hour a week. And I'm also not eating nearly as much. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I definitely noticed a decrease in snacking. That's one of those. Surprisingly enough, I, I have a home office as well. It's in my basement. And the, uh, the refrigerator is a long way away. And so as opposed to in my office where, you know, yeah, I could just run to a snack, a vending machine. And I also wanted to, you know, get up and move around. And um, here it's the kind of thing where it's, you know, yeah, I can go up and get a snack. Yeah, I, really I, I really thing. want it because uh, I walk out that door. The only people to socialize with are the dogs and my kids. And I've seen plenty of both <laughs> <in the last laughs> right. couple of weeks. 
wrap it up. That's been an hour, and I thought we'd only go for like 20 minutes. So, okay, we don't know what we're going to do next time because we don't know anything that's going to happen. <laughs> we, don't, we don't know what's going on for next time. And, and this is obviously releasing a little late, um, you know, for our standard week re uh, release schedule. We just had, you know, timing problems of trying to get trying to get the two of us together to do this. Yep, yep. So, well, we'll try and get something out, but the schedule may be a little squishy here until we, we get uh, the world back to normal. So we're doing everything we can. Uh, so check out our website at lggpodcast.com. It has links to the various platforms where you can download prior episodes. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and by email. Subscribe to this podcast on the platforms. Give us a review to help new listeners find us. You can find me on Twitter at Benjamin Siders and find Kirk at KirkDMN. That's all for today. We'll see you next time. Lauren, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded in St. Louis, Missouri. 